Welcome to Forwards, Backwards, and Upside Down. He knows old stuff. And she knows new stuff. All right, Nathan, what's happening today in history? Well, um, this time I picked, uh, you know, sort of a, a remembrance day. So today, um, it's actually a controversial day in Latvia. Um, it is the day of the remembrance for the Latvian legionaries uh, who have a complicated past. Um, these are soldiers who were part of the um, Latvian army in the Second World War, and they will serve and fight for um, Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union. Uh, and of course, you need to remember, right, that in 1940, Soviet has occupied Latvia, taken this country over. You know, Latvia had been part of the Russian Empire for many years, but has granted its independence um, in 1918, I believe, after the First World War. So the, you know, the official position of the Latvian government is that November 11th, um, like most of the rest of the Western world, is their Veterans Day, you know, their Soldiers Day or Remembrance Day, right? But there is this sort of, you know, this, this holiday actually had been official. It had lost its status. Um, and again, that's, you know, because you can see the controversial nature of it, right, the association of um, troops with, you know, the troubled history, um, to say the least, of, you know, anti-Soviet movements being generally associated with Nazism, which, again, you know, troubled history says it lightly. So I think this brings up an interesting couple of points, right, because you have across the world, right, a sort of growing sense of right-wing and fascist tendencies. And then you also have this interesting idea of, you know, sort of what, you know, what is it like for being an Eastern European country these days, watching what's going on in Ukraine and the Crimea? Yeah, and I think it also brings up uh, the historical context and how we sometimes judge things on how we interpret them today. But to imagine being in Latvia where your choices are a occupying Soviet Union or a potentially liberating Nazi Germany, the decision may be less simplified than simply looking at Nazi Germany through the lens of all we know that happened during that time. Um, and I think that the, the propaganda machines that are both true of Nazi Germany, of the Soviet Union, and of Russia today in a concept like the Crimea situation um, obviously play a part in how people at the time view this, but also retrospectively how people view this when they're deciding what to celebrate and what not to celebrate. Yeah, right. You know, I think it, you can see, right, history. You know, I'm never one for tearing down and destroying history, right? I think it's important to contextualize. It's important to distinguish between a monument to something and a remembrance and, you know, perhaps a study, right? I think, you know, all histories need to be preserved. I think, you know, sweeping history under the rug, trying to avoid and doctor the past is really not to me what stand, you know, it really should be part of, you know, the human experience. I think it's important that we understand and reconcile. Um, and so, you know, a day like this, again, it, it, it calls up an interesting place. So, you know, I did a little digging into our Latvian legionaries, and they technically they've none of them have ever been accused of war crimes. Now, of course, that's a messy and difficult thing to understand. And again, they were not part of the regular Wehrmacht either. They were part of the Waffen SS, who, again, pretty miserable record for those people, uh, to put it lightly. Um, 
so it's hard, you know, it's hard to to understand and see clearly. And I think what can be difficult, right, is people when there is something murky like that, people, you know, tend to be afraid of it, tend to reject it. And so it's important to understand and to reconcile. And I think that can be a difficult thing. Yeah, particularly because though the number of individuals that were alive during World War II dwindles over time, that this is still a a fresh a fresh thing in in certainly older generations um, of of Latvians and across kind of the Baltic countries. Um, I know there's a great documentary about sort of multi generational Ukrainian thoughts and their perceptions of you know, the West of Russia and how that really differs significantly and kind of uh, uh, ebbs and flows that I'm sure um, I do. Do you know if Latvia has constantly changed the date or has it maintained sort of this date and that date? Um, you may not know. That's fine. Um, yeah. So the, the government of Latvia recognizes the date uh, the November the 11th as its sort of international veteran or national veterans day, but there is still commemorations and memorials. Um, people go on a procession to the freedom monument. They lay flowers, uh, on the regimental cemetery. Um, but it's not, it's not a nationally recognized holiday. And again, again, it's controversial because again, you know, they were a, this Latvian legion was part of, you know, Nazi Germany, who, you know, hard. it's hard to displace them as the evilest thing in human history. So, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you do with something like this, right? You know, does this, is this something that should be, again, you know, forgotten? And I would argue, no, I think, you know, it's injustice to forget history. And so... You know, it's important we remember, uh, you know, all sides of of places like Latvia, where you know I think often you get sort of swept away in the the grander study of history, right? You under you forget the struggle of you know not your big your big players, right? The Latvian people, you know, they have their own history and their their place in it too. Absolutely. All right, another small country which has made it to the news this week is New Zealand um, after the deaths of dozens of people. At one point it was 49. I can't say if that's currently true because I know there were several um, severe injuries and in hospitals. Um, the gunman is uh, currently facing trial in New Zealand, but this is a really devastating attack on two separate mosques. Um, in Christchurch, um, which doesn't have a very large Muslim community, but from what I've been reading, uh, the Muslim community there is is quite close. Um, and I think this has really shocked a country that doesn't really see this type of gun violence, unlike the United States, um, doesn't feel the same threat level as countries across Europe when it came to terrorist attacks. Um, or Australia, who had their major terrorist, uh, terrorist attack um, on the Sydney Opera House. Um, and it's putting a lot of things in questions uh, for the country. So it's definitely like my, my thoughts are, are with the people 
of New Zealand and the families involved and the communities that um, in a time where uh, I think there's been so much conversation about uh, random tariffs attacks um, by um, Islamic extremists, now you're kind of seeing the other side. And to me, what's most interesting is how do we respond and how can we respond with the same level of intensity and thought and care that we do when it's a different group of people, you know, almost targeting exactly the opposites. Um, and I think this is a really important time for the world to to think twice. Um, See, yeah. it, it's funny there, Michelle, because you say it's a different group of people targeting the opposites. And to me, I disagree with that. I think it's the same kind of people. It's fanatics. And they're targeting the same kind of people, the innocent. And I think in many ways, you're right. It is different. And yet, it is so disappointingly the same. Right. And I think it depends on, I think it's easy for the news media to divide these people on identity lines to say, this is an Australian native versus this is a Muslim immigrant and that that's the dividing line. But I agree in terms of the ideological presence and extremism, they're one in the same. They're just targeting different people because of their views on, on, on the world and um, you know, the online propaganda, it's, to me, what was interesting is not only was this a shooting, but there's potentially bombs and cars involved. I mean, this is the same playbook built on the internet, really thought about what was the best targeting, other people involved. Um, and, and I think it is very important that we treat it exactly the same. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I have the same disappointment and disgust that humans still haven't figured out that we're all just humans. It's disappointing to me to see us as, again, someone who's studied the long and terrible history that we've made for ourselves so far. There's just so much blood and conflict in our history. And despite the fact that we have gotten better, right, you know, you can talk all about, like, you know, your chances of dying a violent death as a human have gone way down. But in many ways, the, new, the world still feels violent because we, you hear about every little violent death, every, every big violent death. It all um, can be so much crushing sometimes, uh, especially for someone who has a lot of hope for us humans. Um, and so, yeah, it's been hard for me to to keep the faith sometimes in humans because we just keep doing the same miserable shit to each other. And, you know, we want, we're not learning. And so what I'm curious to see and what you, what you mentioned to me when I was sort of, you know, I'm pretty down on this event because it, you know, it's tough is you mentioned the response that's coming from New Zealand and specifically the leadership in New Zealand. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern, who's famous for being one of the few women leaders, she's prime minister in the world, but also she gave birth in office. Um, so really kind of this, this quiet feminist icon, I think has responded with so much poise and thoughtfulness and her, her response of such a random act of tragic violence has been measured. It hasn't been over forceful or under forceful. 
Um, and I think her, for being a leader of a, of a small country in the grand scheme of thing has come, come out and really shined um, in, you know, just listening to how she has described this as terrorism, but not, it's not, oh, we're going to do all of these aggressive top line things to defend this. It's this is terrorism and we need to deal with this and we need to deal with this in the best way possible. Um, but also, I mean, she's using the word terrorism. She's she's pushing that, you know, they want to get to the bottom of this. They want to really understand what happened. How did all of these manifestos be online and kind of we didn't see it coming. So I think she's she's found the middle ground in a way that from my perspective, she's not losing uh, that feminist icon, that that sense of being a unmarried mother in a position of power that I think was something that I really needed in the world to see somebody rationally deal with the solution. You know, because I, I think this, okay, total side issue, but with knowing Angela Merkel is leaving the stage, there's there's a sense of like, who's next? Who's filling the shoes? Who's Who can we see that gives me hope that there's another wave of of wonderfully executing their public position woman uh, coming up next. And I, I think um, this this was a really good example. So for any of you who haven't taken taken a glance at as her as an individual or some of the stuff that, that's come out after this tragedy, um, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, and yeah, and to bring sort of our two today topics together in a little way, I find it again chilling the the rhetoric that's coming out of the right the far right the extreme right you know this idea of immigration as an invasion uh right and sort of you know hearkening back to this idea you know of nativism and that sort of thing you know that that's been a pretty old trope for for nationalist for um you know anti-immigrant politics yeah, I think what's tough for me is we've been seeing since Charlottesville and, and even before then, this acknowledgement that there is a subset of the population who really feels personally attacked. I mean, uh, descriptions of white genocide by uh, the the changing demographics of, of the United States, of Europe, of other Western countries. And I think this to me was there had been other attacks by people of this mindset but this one felt like an this one felt like this is the start of of a battle this is the start of taking this back in a way that's really quite terrifying and in in my personal take what i don't want to have happen is to create the cult personality and create like the demigod that is this movement and i think in the manifesto the the acknowledgement of trump as this sort of demagogue i mean that to me was like we moving forward need to think about how do we counter how do we counter that how do we decrease the cult personality without fueling the flames of the cult personality yeah and speaking of uh, a cult the thing that again kind of disappoints me in humanity is when you know 
the when they find a symbol, they find a demagogue, right? This 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 return of the Nazi. Do they not fucking remember who they are? Who that flag represents? What that was? Three million Polish people, six hundred thousand Serbians. You know, not just Jews, not just one kind of person. It was anyone that didn't fit their system. And I think the people of Eastern Europe would do well to remember that. And I think anyone who would ever hold or stand behind or make a paper cup fucking swastika need to remember what exactly they're associating themselves with. Yeah, I hope I, I hope this event starts to trigger a conversation that is really valuable that 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 somehow things are going in completely the wrong direction and we need to thoughtfully and I say thoughtfully because I can see this going extremist in a, in in similar ways that I think um, extremist violence has been dealt with in the past. Um, before things continue to get worse. So I hope this this is a wake-up call of how deep some of this is and how, yeah, that there's there's a forgetfulness of something we've all decided. Catholic nuns, innocent Spanish Republicans. It, the list goes on. You associate yourself with what they did is an ignorant and disappointing thing to do. Why don't we now shift to perhaps hopefully some lighter and more hopeful topics, although again, it's been a tough week with what's been in the news. And so why don't you take us into our next segment, love? Okay, so this is not something that I've been talking to people about, though I'm more than happy um, as a Game of Thrones fan to do this. But I think there's an interesting conversation in, um, I've been doing a lot of kind of reading on Game of Thrones, kind of prepping myself for April. And uh, something that came up again and again is this comparison of the Game of Thrones politics going into the final season with the current global conversation around climate change. Essentially, you have these warring families all fighting for the throne. And for many seasons, it's all about sort of that interstate conflict between these different families um, who rightfully owns this and territorial claims and battles for this. But there's this looming winter, which certain people, depending on their geographical space, are more affected than others and kind of know that this is happening. And we see in the latest season, I'm not, okay, this is obviously a spoiler, but if you haven't caught up, uh, I mean, then it, the at some point it's, it's, uh, sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, now we have the White Walkers and, and the, the harsh of winter coming to Westeros. And I think this is when we're starting to see characters and families and and rivalries have to cooperate in order to fight the bigger fights. And that, I think, has incredible parallels to climate change, how 
you know, okay, countries right now are having, there is violence in various countries fighting over resources, which all of that has to do with the changing climate. And at some point, if the world doesn't decide to cooperate, then it's all over because climate change is the bigger threat. And what I'm, I'm most interested in is watching the next, the generation after millennials, whether you call it Generation App or iGen, or I think it's got a letter sometimes, but that generation, they're protesting on Friday classes. They're going to their politicians and begging this one single issue, which is climate change. Because for them, I think they more than the rest of us see that as the ultimate threat and are willing to do much more cooperative kind of bring together action. It's It's been incredible to see like a single student deciding to protest on Fridays from secondary school in Sweden now is across like a, several students do it in France. It started in the United States. Dozens of countries are starting to, to do this in a way that social media allows those borders to fall away. That started kind of with millennials, but in this next generation is, is so significant that I, I think I actually see a, a potential shining hope there um, in the way I'm, I'm curious to see if the final season of Game of Thrones responds to their climate change, which is the White Walkers and sort of the, the great winter um, and, and how that may help us be able to talk about these issues through kind of a, um, something we can isolate to say like, OK, in this like magical world of Westeros, what did they do? How did they respond? How did their foreign policy of each family respond to this and, and how can we exemplify that in our own in our own world yeah i think i mean if you for those who've had the opportunity to really delve into uh, martin's uh, world he's created for us to to enjoy you'll see that actually remember this this is not the first of these sort of winters to appear right we have the this previous time, this age of legends and heroes, when sort of the earliest predecessors of these now political families um, lived and sort of took Hume, took, took uh, Westerosi, right, which are the Andals mostly, um, except for the Starks, who were the first men, um, you know, took them through this first dark and terrible time. Um, and right you have sort of the, the history deniers right people who think it's all myth or legend or nonsense right you've got the dramatic scene where finally the the zombie is presented to um you know everyone's favorite queen is you know you have to see this you have to learn right and then you know cersei's response is you know to basically look to her own walls her own people and say you know what like no one can stop it. We're all fucked. So let's just hang out, you and me, brother. And for the first time, right, what does brother do? He leaves. He's, he's going to drop his family. He's going to hold to the oath, right? The great oath breaker will, will finally keep an oath. You know, we the final one of those final scenes, right, is Jamie riding north. And so, you know, I wonder, like, will will that happen in our world right will will some people turn away from the problem and simply look to their own defense and their own people whereas others will 
right off to the to the wall. Yeah, and I think Cersei is a great example because she exemplifies the the she is able in ways to have that reaction because she is sitting in King's Landing and she will not be affected by it first and she will not be affected by it most. And I think that the 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 issue is the centers of power in many ways in our world and our global economy more than anything are situated in places that will probably see the effects of climate change last and that have sort of that timing to be able to close borders and do various things to keep the problem out. Um, and so I I agree. I, I hope I hope more people run to the wall, but more than that, I I hope that the warnings about this issue were not taken seriously. And I hope we can learn from that lesson and start to take the issue seriously. Like what could have been done in Westeros to mitigate some of the problems earlier on earlier seasons? Um, and and maybe we'll take that as our lesson. I'm glad you still have hope, love. I'm worried we might have already missed our chance. I I, I take that as a fair point. I I I believe that there are enough really remarkable, not only people, but motivational minds. That I think I think it is a problem that we are closing in on a end all moment. I still think that if you've looked at how technology has transformed the world in such a brief time since I've been alive, I I can see a world of which we're able to to really solve this. It's going to as we said last week on the podcast, it's a matter of willpower. So that's really what I'm looking for. Um and I know the Game of Thrones analogy is kind of silly at the end of the day, but it, I I really think that these are the conversations that we can have that that are accessible um, in in a way that may be fruitful, and it may not. So, let's do something silly, Nathan. What Reddit should we roll through today? Oh, sorry. Say that one more time, love. I was in the middle of sneezing. Roll through Reddit so we can maybe find something funny. Um, what Reddit should we roll through today? Oh, um. Well, I think this is me realizing we forgot to plan this one out. Um, hmm. Well, let me open up Reddit. Let's take a look. How about, we did world news, um, but I feel like we've already done a little news talking today. And again, I don't know if I want to talk more about the news that makes me sad. You know, it's a tough thing these days, right, to try to balance happy and sad. Um, so why don't we try... about technology maybe the futurist in me can uh have a chance to save us all you know you know the subreddit love our technology i'm on our tech is that not the right thing technology uh this one's technology I think all it's, right i am on our tech here we go Let's First, you see the UK air breathing rocket, right? So that's a cool one, right? So this is a, a project the UK is working on developing a hypersonic engine um, that could be a possibly take planes from London to Sydney uh, in as little as four hours. It's uh, set for its first key demonstration today. 
Um, that's some pretty sci-fi shit. Four hours London to Sydney would be a pretty dramatic increase. So this is, so there's interesting because it's, there's, this is a whole, like, it, there's different stages and levels to some of these projects. The goal time is 23 minutes. You literally shoot out of the atmosphere and shoot back in. Um, many, many ways, years away from happening. Uh, but I think this quicker and quicker, going further and further, um, is going to very much contrast with the technologies that are doing, um, you know, uh, teleport, like, okay, teleporting, obviously the wrong word. Um, you know, these Skype call conferences, and now you have conference rooms that are very much set up for remote calls and things like that. And so there's there's that piece of it, which is saying, like, we don't have to travel across the world for one meeting, but at the same time, a continued effort to make that possible to go all the way to Sydney for one meeting. So I actually find those kind of contrasting in a way that I'm curious whether the business world when this opportunity comes, we'll again prefer that in-person relationship, which I think is actually very important at the end of the day. Let's see, any other cool tech? Yeah, that could be that could be pretty awesome, right? The, the capability to really travel. I mean, the transportation already does so much to make the world a smaller place, you know. 23 minutes is pretty bad. All right. Um, the app. Oh, go, go ahead, oh, oh, I wonder if we have the same one. I was going to say this seems really obvious to me, but it actually is a. I have an interesting point about it, which is the average U.S. millennial watches more Netflix than TV. That is literally what I was about to talk about. You're not wrong. See, I'm not sure this is why we're married, but it cracks me up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what I found today is there used to be a moment for TV when all the new pilots were coming out, when you could kind of take a moment and say, these are the 15 new shows across the five major networks that are coming this fall or spring that you may want to consider. And it gave you an opportunity to say like, okay, these are things I'm going to try and then I'm going to watch this. I realized I took a two week hiatus from Netflix because I was, I was traveling and doing things. Suddenly the whole Netflix has like an entire screen. I, I didn't see a show I recognized in an entire screen because they're coming out with show like 10 shows a week. Um, so what I am curious about and interested by is how much following shows actually have. Are people watching one episode of many, many shows? Are they kind of dipping their toes in? Unlike I mean, I remember when Lost came out and like you had to watch Lost. It was all about Lost and you couldn't like not watch an episode of Lost and everyone watched it all the way to the end. And Desperate Housewives is that same like phenomena uh, and Friends and all these other shows. Um, I, I would be curious by Netflix doesn't really give out statistics, which I think is a bummer because I think we could learn so much from sort of this this rich data that they have on viewership. I would be curious how many people go from start to finish of a single show. Yeah, yeah, definitely some interesting stuff. Um, speaking of another internet giant, um, Facebook is rapidly losing millennials. U.S. user base down to 15 million since 2017 amongst the millennial age group. Um, and then one of the things I always love about Reddit, right, is you, you, know, you always got to read some of the comments, right? And I think the first comment really hits home to me why, to me, this isn't really that big of a freaking deal because – 
right? You know, millennials are still all over Instagram, all over WhatsApp. And at the end of the day, right, you're still, you know, that's still part of the Facebook family, people. Um, and so it brings up this interesting, you know, the sort of hate for Facebook's been getting recently, right? People not always aware that Facebook's diversified, diversified its portfolio a little. Well, and it's one of, I mean, their acquisition of both WhatsApp and Instagram, at the time there were questions of whether they had overvalued it, and absolutely they did not do that. They they got banged for their buck in terms of holding multiple markets. There was a controversy a couple of weeks ago where Facebook had kind of revealed that it's considering integrating all the messaging systems between the three, which is... I think a terrible idea because WhatsApp is encrypted in a way that obviously Facebook Messenger isn't. I have no idea. I, I don't even think I can figure out how to message somebody on Instagram. Um, but I think it is it is it was a moment where people realized, oh shoot, you have all these data across these three platforms. You can integrate them in a way that like I I know people don't necessarily put their phone number on their Facebook because they don't want it to link to their phone. But if your WhatsApp is linked to your phone and then your WhatsApp and your Facebook are linked, like suddenly you're starting to realize that in, in the ways you're trying to be private in certain scopes for various reasons, like if Facebook just links them all, then then that's over. So um, I I think Facebook has a, has a lot of power that people, I agree with you, that people do not realize that it's all Facebook. Yes, and then um, another piece of, this one's buried down at the bottom, right, but it's pilots offer insight on Boeing, Boeing 737 crashes. Um, you know, I think it brings up a couple of interesting things, right? First of all, you know, um, our, our president isn't always my favorite, but he didn't mention an interesting point in all this Boeing thing, right, which is that, you know, you don't need, a, you don't need to be a pilot anymore to fly an airplane. You need, you know, a tech degree from MIT. And I thought that was an interesting sort of concept he makes for this idea of, you know, honestly overcomplicating it. And it's possibly looking like the reason for the 737 crashes may be one of these sort of automated systems that they've got on the airplane that pilots don't necessarily understand or know totally what they're doing with. And that is causing a sort of, you know, a cascading set of problems. Um, and to me, that brings up sort of an interesting concept, right? You know, this idea of, you know, automation and the automated car, and, you know, bringing automation into an airplane, right? At what point, you know, is, you know, every car on the street being a self-driverless car is going to be safer, right? Mm -hmm. But it, but it, when interfacing that technology with humans, you know, that's where the problems can be brought in, right? So that's sort of an interesting thing, right? That, you know, is this um, a lack of accountability on Boeing's part for really making sure that pilots understand and, and are aware of this new thing. I mean, and certainly Boeing's paying for it, right? I mean, their stock has, you know, done a nosedive. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important aircraft for them, particularly in the Chinese market, which is so growing in terms of both domestic and international travel as kind of Chinese uh, reaches the middle class. I also, one of my favorite things I've ever read about AIs is that like one of the most difficult things about programming AIs right now is human irrationality on the road like we don't do what we're supposed to do and that like confuses computers and i just like i always keep that in the back of my mind that um it just must be really difficult to kind of deal with the you know mind field that is the human response to things yeah shall we do numbers in the news 
Sure. Yeah, I've got. Uh, do you want to go range. first? Or do you want me to go first? Well, you know, I'm always a southern gentleman. The ladies first. Oh, I thank you. So my number is 149, which is the difference between the eyes and the nays. Which, if you if you never listen to um, the uh, MP in Parliament, whose job it is is to say that, like he just has this brilliant way of saying the eyes have it, the eyes have it. Um, which is just like, I don't know, it cracks me up because we've been hearing it over and over with all this Brexit. So uh, 149 is the difference between the yeses and the noes on Theresa May's second attempt at voting for her deal with the EU. That was a fail on that vote. It was by less than the difference last time, which is over 200. But that vote meant that there was still no deal or no concept of what would happen come March 23rd. On Thursday, British Parliament then voted to extend. However, they depend on the 27 other EU members to agree to that extension. Michelle Barnier has, it seems like acknowledged that that's a possibility, uh, but it's still unclear because I think throughout this whole process, what the EU has done really well is basically said like, here's your deal, take it or leave it, and really stood strong in there. So I think there's a sense of like, okay, we can delay this, but it seems like we can, we will not, there's no, there's no desire to delay it past European elections this summer, because there's no point to elect people to a parliament, they're not, uh, European parliament, they're never going to sit in for the British. So they have this clock of saying like, okay, you have a few more months until EU elections, but what is going to change in that time on the EU side seems to be nothing because I don't think there's flexibility in that deal. They, they discuss the deal, they need the deal, that's the deal. And there's, there's obviously no change in the domestic situation in Britain. So it comes to this like, uh, who knows situation on what's going to happen next. Um, a second referendum was denied in Parliament as well, I believe. So it's looking like uh, a situation of a game of chicken, essentially, between the EU and Britain. Uh, but the EU feels a bit stronger as they're quite united as a group, while there is no union happening in the British Parliament. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. You know, I find myself back and forth with Brexit these days. In some ways, I just, you know, just just get it over with. Just go off the cliff. So just... Maybe at least you can serve as an example to the rest of the world why returning to more national and nationalistic and rejecting globalism is a bad idea these days. Because, um, you know, the humanist in me really still rooting for a more global world. Although, you know, I understand people who are dissatisfied with the corporatization. And, you know, I get that in many ways the global the global world has really fucked a lot of people over really badly. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think if we're going to fight off the White Walkers, if we're going to solve climate change, we got to work together. And so as people, you know, seem to be circling their wagons more and, and retreating away from a more interconnected world, you know, I think that's not the right choice. And at some point, the Brits just need to live with it. They yeah. can always go back, right? So if so, the, <laughs> the main issue is if they are to leave the EU and then want to reascend to the EU, they would have to take the euro. <laughs> Good. Lesson learned, maybe. <laughs> and 
I, I like, I never forget this, uh, this concept that my father told me at one point when we were discussing Brexit, which is Britain is dealing with the fact they have lost their empire. Like this is the kind of a time when they have to look at Europe and be like, well, of course you'll do all these negotiations because we're the British empire. And then they're like, you're just Britain. Just, this is what you're going to get. And I think them having to take the Euro would be like the final moment when like, there's no more Sterling. It's, it's the final moment is going to be when Scotland leaves. (laughs) that'll be the true empire gone, right? Can't even maintain contiguous rule over your little island anymore. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, though I haven't, I I still have heard whispers that they're still set up to do a second independence referendum, but um, it seems like this is so chaotic that everyone... Yeah, um, Labor told their folks not to vote on it. They're going to try on the 26th, I think. Uh, in okay. 10 days, they're going to try to have a, a real vote for second referendum. Okay. I meant Scottish independence referendum. But... Oh, well, that, I mean, it has to happen if Brexit happens. And then, yeah, I think every, the Scots have every right to. They got the Brits lied to them. <laughs> they said they were going to stay in the Union. And yeah. the Scots said, fine, then we'll stay in the UK. <laughs> and... This comes to a whole debate on referendums as a way to have national decisions. Um there's a very good BBC uh, podcast about it, um, but yeah, totally different. Yeah, yeah. no, the, the referendum is a great a point of great conflict for me, because again, you know, not to get tired of this, but being a good humanist, I really believe that every human should get to vote and have a say, but on the other side of me, you know, the teacher, some people don't spend enough time educating themselves or haven't had a chance to be educated well or the system has gotten in the way of them being educated well a number of number of reasons right but they're voting about things they don't necessarily comprehend and understand and and are unable to make an informed decision um so you know maybe if the remain campaign hadn't been so asininely run we wouldn't be in this problem in the first place but again you know actually sitting here in america which is a massive contiguous land empire um, and our empire seems to be doing pretty well for now, at least. I do have maybe some sympathy on my fellow Anglophile losing what remnants they have left. But they did have their time in the sun. Um, you know, history is never, never a kind mistress. Very true. They did have their moment in the sun, but... Speaking of, um, you know, before I get too um, patriotic on you, <laughs> uh, my numbers are um, something that surprised me, right? So this is, um, it's the most obese countries in the world by obesity rates. Um, This is is to clarify the percentage of individuals who are obese in the country. Yes. And I, you know, obviously the United States were in there, right? This is usually something we're pretty great at. We're pretty good at being fat. Um, But what really surprised me was that Eight of the other countries are all from a similar region of the world. And I never would have guessed it. Um, and I'm curious to see if you can, love. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. One of them is definitely Mexico. It's not. Really? I thought it would be, too. It's not. Yeah. No. Um, New Zealand is the other one that's in there. 
And then the other eight are all from the same region. Okay, I'm gonna think about the region for a second. Um, I find, so Mexico tends to, what I find interesting is Mexico fights the US for the richest human in the world, but also the largest human in the world. And then they go back and forth pretty consistently for those two titles. Um, so I, I, I made an assumption that was completely incorrect based on kind of an extreme. Um, so I guess that's on, that's on me and my statistical error. Let me think about the regional world. Okay, so highest rates of obesity. Um, Fiji, are they on there? No, again, you got this is excluding small island countries. So I think I think that I sorry, I didn't I didn't mention that part. I think they they throw off the data. Yeah, cuz I would say Polynesia usually gets um gets something on there. Uh so pretty small countries. They're not islands. So again, you know, statistics will be what you make them. Um 8 of the 10 countries are in the Middle East. I was literally going to say Oman and you didn't even let me pick. Well, you were there. You knew it. You congratulations, my love. Good I guess. Did. I did. That's uh, my next wedding. Yeah, according to this, fattest country in the world is Kuwait. Well, U.S. number two. And then there. Also, Arabia, I, Libya, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Lebanon, and the United Arab Emirates. So I think what's, what's a fascinating question with this, and this is, so I was just listening um, to Bombshell Podcast, which is, um, you know, a woman in, in the national security world kind of discussing issues. And one of the things they say that's so important is a basic understanding of statistics. And I think what what I like couldn't get over when you immediately said Kuwait is is this statistical are they only using the pool of people to find as citizens of that country and in doing so eliminate sort of the migrant worker populations that are in many of these Gulf countries um, and sort of like curiosity like these definitions based on sort of what factors qualify you into one factor or the other. Yeah, and so what what struck me as interesting was then trying to think about why is that the case? Um, and so, you know, again, uh, um, I got this number from one of my favorite subreddits, Data is Beautiful, um, and I was looking at some of the comments and things people were making, and one thing someone brought up was, like, you know, perhaps is that because um, and a lot of these countries are dry countries. People, you know, in order to be indulgent or luxurious, people are, you know, eating candy or sugar. People are um, eating unhealthier foods um, as a way of really not being able to indulge. And certainly, you know, alcohol consumption can be related to obesity. It is pretty caloric. Um, but then someone countered that argument by pointing out that Utah, right, a state where about 60% of the adult population is Mormon, not very, you know, at only a 25% obesity rate, which again, isn't, you know, great. But in the United States, that puts you at the 46th skinniest state. So not yeah. bad for Utah. Good job hitting uh, the gym there. Um, so, right. So interestingly, you know, is it um, perhaps, you know, is it more socially acceptable, right? Perhaps, um, you know, is, is being fat um, perhaps a sign of status, right? Or something like that, you know, uh, and certainly in countries where, um, you know, historically, they have not been, you know, the most arable of countries in terms of, um, you know, being able to produce their own food sources, right? So being fat would be a sign of wealth, a sign of luxury, right? Or perhaps, you know, with different um, standards of beauty, right? Is there less of an obsession with uh, your BMI and your, and your body image and stuff, right? So it's an interesting thoughts, right, about 
why are these countries in the Middle East so fat? Yeah, I highly recommend there's, um, I, the source of it is passing my mind now, but it, it, it is um, basically a computer algorithm that gives the ideal woman in multiple different countries. And I just, I highly recommend taking a look at it because it's, it really shows that this idea of pure beauty is very cultural. And what I would be most intrigued by is to see that over time, where does certain influences of um, sort of Western media influences change those standards? But in countries where I think the, the culture is much more entrenched, I would assume that may play a factor. Um, I mean, I think those things are very diverse globally. Um, yeah, and in, and in most of these, so in the States, for example, it's pretty close to being 50-50. I think men are a little, let's see, no, I think women are by just a percent, you know, a decimal place or two. But um, in Turkey, for example, of the, so you know, in Turkey, 32% of the population is obese, 20.4% of that population is, is female obesity. Um, Egypt, um, the UAE, Kuwait all have similar numbers where it's predominantly uh, women to men. So, yeah, I wonder if it is, um, you know, the different uh, approaches to, yeah, your idea of the ideal, uh, you know, woman. Woman in figure. All right, our wholesome happening. I was pleased to see this one um, as we've lived many years in California. Uh, California is officially drought free for the first time in seven years as of this week. Yeah, pretty great. Um, I guess the whole global warming thing uh, isn't real after all because it rains. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but, you know, it'd be nice if that was just true, right? Um, yeah, you know, it's been raining a lot here uh, in Cali. Um, snowpacks are back the reservoirs are full uh and i'm sure in no time at all we'll be able to squander it um like we usually do yeah i'll be curious so i remember when uh, in my time in california which started when i went to university in 2009 sort of i remember when the um the alternating lawn days went into effect and then people ended up just paying the fines instead of not being able to water their lawns I remember when you had to request water at restaurants um, and they wouldn't just like freely serve you. You always had to be like, hey, can I get some more water? Uh, sort of watching California deal with this drought over time, sort of more and more stringent rules. But always, and this is not very hopeful, though I've been hopeful most of this podcast, is um, just a feeling that uh, there was a sense, and maybe that's because we live in Los Angeles and other cities in California responded differently, a sense of buying away the problem. Like, yes, there are rules and there are fines, but we will pay the fine to not have to do the rule, which I was hoping that implementation of uh, regulations about the drought would carry on past the drought. That. No, I mean, it's, it's just more sad proof that we're ignorant, vain creatures, that we want um, this sort of, you know, fantasy green patch in front of our house uh, to say something. You know, I, I find rocks and mulch and other sorts of decoration just as pleasant. Um, but, you know, there's the green lawn and such a thing. And so we're going to take this increasingly scarce and, and um, you know, 
precious resource and just fucking you know throw it in a bunch of grass. It's like it even makes food, people. Like it, yeah, it's so ridiculous. negative today. <laughs> this well, is a wholesome happening. Plants here. So here's my wholesome happening would be. Um, in California, we finally planted some trees. This was my wholesome thing. It was Arbor Day not too long ago. And in Cal- in L.A. alone, we planted 2,100 trees, right? Trees help um, reduce the island heat effect or something like those lines that happens in cities, right? Trees help keep cities cooler. They're lovely. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. Uh, and I'm talking real trees, not your silly palm trees, L.A. And so perhaps if... Um, you know, to continue on being wholesome, tear up your lawn and plant a few trees. Or at least succulents. At least succulents. They're lovely. Everyone loves succulents. Okay. Wholesome I'm, enough? I'm going to do our funny fact finish because I personally dislike Pi Day so much. However, I did a little research and found out some fun facts about Pi Day. The earliest official celebration was 1988. The House of Representatives actually supported formally designating Pi Day March 14th in 2009. However, there are multiple concepts of this Pi Day. Apparently, there is a Pi Approximation Day 22 over 7, which would make it the 22nd of July, almost my birthday. And According to Wikipedia, there is a lightly observed two pie day, which that's just ridiculous. There's, that doesn't offer anything. This is just people wanting to eat, consume more pie, or I don't know how one celebrates two pie day, but that is June 28th for all of you who wish to celebrate. Yeah, happy party, love. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> As a former mathematics teacher, that students would think that reciting 100 digits of pi was at all understanding what pi actually represented in terms of its mathematical significance. I just, uh, but at least pi is tasty, so. It'll be math prodigies. Some of us just like reciting numbers off in our head. You know, the Buddhists use it to meditate. Reciting digits of pi? Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. Actually, that's our that's our fun fact finish. The Buddhists use numbers of pi to meditate. I love that. All right. See you guys next week. <laughs>